You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. A couple of weeks ago, I was able to take part in, for the first time in my life, a rite of passage that many preteens and many teenagers joyfully get to experience. I got braces on my teeth. So how many of you here have had braces before? All right, great. Yes. So you know what I'm talking about. It's a crazy experience. You suddenly have this hardware in your mouth that you know is not going anywhere for many months and sometimes years. Um, What I found interesting is that sometimes when they put the braces in your mouth, they don't always seem to clean up their work. So you see there's this wire that connects kind of all your teeth, all your braces together. It's it's like this big, massive tug-of-war within your mouth that never stops. And uh, at, at the end, these wires, were they were poking outward into my cheek. So I was kind of like, why don't you just kind of bend it backwards or even sideways so that it goes into the tooth rather than into my cheek? So it's kind of this slow, gentle chewing up of the inside of your mouth, right? So <clears throat> it's not pleasant. So what they do to help you with this, if you've had braces, you know, they give you this block of wax. So, all right. So I'm going to let you guys in on this secret, amazing uh, world of braces. So you, what, you can try this for yourself sometimes. So you get this wax and you roll it into a ball about the size, they say, of a, a kernel of corn. And then you just kind of place it on top of the wire or the place that's poking you. And you just kind of mash it into place there and it's supposed to stay. And and then it's suddenly smooth and no more poking. So right after I got my braces and figured out how to use the wax, our singles ministry had a special event. So a couple weeks ago, we had a sister's encouragement night where uh, the brothers, single brothers in our fellowship kind of got together and we said, we're going to have like a special catered dinner for our sisters and appreciate them. We had uh, some live music. We had dance lessons. We gave each one of them a card. And um, and on a side point, I really appreciate about our fellowship here in the West Side is that we take time to appreciate and honor the women in our fellowship and give them kind of the value and the honor that God gives them that society sometimes forgets or ignores. So anyway, part of what I was doing was I was kind of giving some words of appreciation and then I was reciting a poem of uh, women empowerment to them. And um, so right in the middle of my presentation to all these great sisters, a couple of the balls of wax become displaced and they start swirling around my mouth as I'm trying to speak and, and, and read this poem. So it was hard enough speaking with these new braces on because it kind of changes the configuration of your mouth. But now these, these little balls of wax are just like popping around like popcorn in the microwave. And, uh, you know, in front of all our wonderful sisters, I don't want to stick my fingers in my mouth and fish them out, right? And and I certainly don't want to try to spit them out because, you know, newly configured mouth, I, I have no judgment as to where that spit is going to go. 
or even if I can spit, right? So it was an extremely awkward situation. So I just kind of pushed through this crazy discomfort that my mouth was going through uh, out of true admiration for our sisters and the desire not to make them lose their appetite. So this morning, no wax, all right? So if at some point in my lesson uh, this morning you find yourself suddenly not able to understand the words that are coming out of my mouth, it's probably, it's not an issue with the mic, it's not the sound crew, that they're awesome. It's most likely the wire has scratched my tongue or my cheek and has changed the way I'm able to speak mid-presentation, right? Also, if at some point you notice that my face is a little moist or dripping, it's probably not that my heart was so moved and, and there are tears in my eyes or passion that has made me perspire. Now, odds are it's just drool that's kind of coming from my mouth as I'm still getting used to these things and being able to talk, right? So some of you, you know what I'm talking about, right? And for those of you who don't, it's truly magical. Try it sometime. All right. All right. So we've been going through a series here in the West Side uh, talking about trust. And, and we've been looking through the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning, I'm going to take us to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and look at where the foundation lies for our trust. But before we start, let's pray. God, we've come to this space this morning dragging all sorts of burdens. We just want to acknowledge the stress and the anxiety for those who've just started school or are in a new season of work and feel the weight that's been piled upon them. We ask you now to remind us that you made the universe, not us. You sustain the world through your efforts, not ours. Please remind us of the divine call to simply be your partners in helping reshape and repair and remake the world the kind of world that you want it to be. Please lift off of our shoulders the weight that you never asked us to carry in the first place. We just invite you to the muck and the mess and the awkward situations. As we take a deep breath, please remind us that your spirit is breath, that you're as close as an exhale, as an inhale, And as we continue to look at the Sermon on the Mount, we pray that you continue to reveal to us what new creation looks like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's go to Matthew, to the end of chapter 4, verse 23. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So the key to looking at the Sermon on the Mount is looking at the large crowds that were gathered around Jesus. People from Galilee, which was a very Jewish area where Jesus was raised. People from the Decapolis, that means ten cities. So that was a Greek area that was settled originally by Alexander the Great. So they were not Jewish, not religious, not pure or clean or holy. 
not following or even reading the scriptures. So all sorts of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds. You would have some people in the crowd that were taught from birth not to associate in order to be close to God. They can't associate with those type of people. And then you've got now all of these people mixed into the same crowd. So now Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to them, to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this enormous crowd of sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and really, really religious people and Gentile people, it's just this massive spectrum of humanity. And it's in the midst of this crowd that Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of God is available to them. It's falling on them. It's crashing into the earth where they are. So first of all, the phrase poor in spirit is a negative term. You might say the losers, the pathetic, those who are at the end of their rope. Writer and scholar Dallas Willard calls them the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. Those without a trace of good in them, the morally empty, it's not a good term. It's not something to which we are supposed to aspire. So sometimes it gets translated to those who know how much they need God, right? You probably heard that. But that would mean that God's blessing is for people who have attained a particular state of humility. It's kind of like, I have achieved a rating of nine on the humility scale. Well, actually it was a ten, but you know me. Something is wrong about that picture, right? When What Jesus is doing here is something so upside down, so counterintuitive to how we think it's supposed to be, but also so brilliant and ultimately so shocking. And I would argue at the same time, deeply comforting. It takes a while to absorb just what's happening. He's not giving people an honorable, praiseworthy character quality to achieve, nothing to aspire to, or go after or try to attain and then celebrate that now you are that. So secondly, when Jesus says blessed, the Greek is makarios, is often translated fortunate. Some people would translate it happy. You might have heard that. Although if you catch the next verse, it says happy are those who are sad, which doesn't seem to make sense. So we want to get the full weight of meaning. Theologian Frederick Dale Bruner understands blessed to mean a divine sense that God is with you. It's God's way of saying, I am on your side. So Jesus is saying, fortunate are you because God is with you. Fortunate are the losers, the pathetic, the depraved, the lame, the spiritual zeros, because God is on your side. When Jesus, What Jesus is doing here, it's an announcement. It is a fundamentally different way of framing something. He's not giving instruction or command or advice. He begins the Sermon on the Mount with an announcement 
that God is on the side of everybody who there's no reason for God to be on their side. It's fundamentally upside down and counterintuitive. So when Jesus makes this announcement, your first impulse may be, what is the good thing about this condition, about being poor in spirit, that deserves the blessing of God? Every religion actually asks the question, what good thing must one do to be blessed by God? But this announcement is blessed are all the people who aren't humble. Blessed are the pathetic, the wretched, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the alcoholics, the thieves. Blessed is everyone who doesn't believe in God. Blessed are all the morally empty people. Blessed are all the people the favor of God is now falling on them. If at any moment the blessing is for just the people that have somehow got some good in them, then the favor of God would just be for them. But this announcement announcement of Jesus to this massive crowd of people from across the spectrum is blessed are all the people who there's no reason why they should be blessed. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. It's terribly confrontive and disruptive and disturbing for religious people because it's so easy to be convinced that God's blessing is just for these particular people because of what they've done or achieved or said or believed. But Jesus demolishes all of that here. Blessed are the totally pathetic losers without a wisp of religion, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Now, the immediate question that comes to mind is, why? Why? Why is that? So let's look at some of the things that Jesus said and did. He doesn't give us much in the way of why, other than because that's just what God is like. But he tells story after story where no real explanation is given. And there doesn't seem to be a point other than there's something intrinsic as to the way God is. So the why is apparently because God is just like that. It's totally counterintuitive. So let's turn over to Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 23. When they heard this, so Jesus was at a, a, a banquet that he was attending and and as he was speaking, it says, when they heard this, one of the dinner guests said to Jesus, someday God will have a kingdom feast and how happy and, and privileged will be the ones who get to share in that joy. So in other words, this guy is speaking, saying, you know, the, those <clears throat> who are uh, Orthodox Jew, who have really followed the rules, they'll get to participate and blessed be them. Jesus is like, mm, let me tell you something. He replied with this parable. A man invited many to join him in a great feast. When the day for the feast arrived, the host instructed his servant to notify all the invited guests and tell them, come, for everything is now ready for you. But one by one, they all made excuses. One said, I can't come. I just bought some property, and I have to go look at it. All right, so you would never buy property without having first looked at it, right? Another said, Please accept my regrets, for I just purchased five teams of oxen, and I need to make sure that they can pull the plow. All right, you would never buy oxen without first knowing that they could pull a plow. 
Another one said, I can't come because I just got married. Right? No explanation needed. Right? The servant reported back to the host and told him all of their excuses. The master became angry and said to his servant, go at once throughout the city and invite everyone you find, the poor, the blind, the disabled, the hurting, and the lonely, basically the poor in spirit. Invite them to my banquet. When the servant returned to his master, he said, Sir, I have done what you asked, but there's still room for more. So the master told him, All right, go out again, and this time bring them all back with you. Persuade the beggars on the streets, the outcasts, even the homeless. Insist that they come in and enjoy the feast so that my house may be full. So why does this man have a great feast? It doesn't say. He just does. What's the occasion? Well, we don't know. Apparently, he just likes to throw great feasts and have anybody and everybody come. All right, let's flip over to uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 11. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus passed through the border region between Samaria and Galilee. Okay, that's a, a, a part that probably people, good Jews, wouldn't be traveling. And he entered one village. As he entered one village, ten men approached him. But they kept their distance, for they were lepers. They shouted to him, Mighty Lord, our wonderful Master, won't you have mercy on us and heal us? When Jesus stopped to look at them, he spoke these words, Go to be examined by the Jewish priests. They set off, and they were healed while walking along the way. So why does Jesus heal these ten lepers? Why? We find out later that one of them was grateful for it, but the other nine weren't. But Jesus still healed them all. Okay, we'll flip over to Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus had to pass through Jericho. There lived a very wealthy man named Zacchaeus, who supervised all the tax collectors. He was very eager to see Jesus and kept trying to get a look at him through the massive crowd. Since Zacchaeus was a short man, he couldn't see over the heads of the people. He ran out ahead of everyone and climbed up a blossoming fig tree to get a glimpse of Jesus as he passed by. When Jesus got to the place, he looked up into the tree and said, Zacchaeus, hurry on down, for I must stay at your house today. So he scurried down the tree and found himself face to face with Jesus. As Jesus left to go with Zacchaeus, many in the crowd complained, look at this, of all the people to have dinner with, He's going to eat in the house of a crook. Think about this. This man was a chief tax collector. He made his great wealth off the backs of the ordinary, everyday, normal people in society. So he was despised and he was hated. So there's actually this incredible social stigma that Jesus has when he says, I must stay at your house, Zacchaeus. Why does Jesus need to stay at this man's house of someone like this? Why? Endlessly, you find favor, grace, fellowship, embrace with Jesus. In 1974, a Frenchman named Philippe Petit and his friends snuck up to the top of the World Trade Center towers in New York, and they strung a wire across them, and he tightroped between the World Trade Towers for 45 minutes. At one point, he even laid down on the wire. 
At another point, the police gathered on one of the towers and they were trying to get him to come back so they could arrest him. So he walked up to them and then he walked back. A crowd gathered down below looking up and said, is that a man on a tightrope walking a quarter of a mile up without a safety net, with no harness, no ropes? So actually, there's a movie, Man on Wire, which is a documentary that won the Academy Award for Best Documentary about that event. So it's essentially an account of how he and his friends pulled off that event after years of planning. So as a teenager, he was in a dentist's office, and he opened up the newspaper, and it says, and he saw this diagram of these trade towers that were one day going to be built. And he took out a pencil and he drew a line between the top of them. And he says, one day I will walk across those towers. And he did it. He spent 45 minutes up there and eventually he was arrested. And on the form that the police officers were filling out, the reason for arrest, they actually wrote man on wire. The, The media went crazy and they gathered around the car as he was being arrested. And they all have their pads out and their microphones And uh, they're trying to get a quote from him. They're asking him why he did it again and again. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? And in the documentary, he says, only in America would I get this question. I just did something magnificent and mysterious, and I got a practical why. And the beauty of it is I didn't that I didn't have any why. There is no why. And at one point, he says, only Americans would ask why. The French would never ask why. Why? Why? To a large crowd, to a mishmash of humanity, to all these different people with all these different worldviews and religions and views and gods and practices. Why did Jesus announce the blessing of God is yours? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritual zeros, those without a wisp of religion, the pathetic, those who haven't kept the covenant. Those who don't believe all the right things. Those who have really, really, really messed it up in an endless number of ways. To all of those, God is on your side. To all of those who don't deserve the blessing of God, the blessing of God is here and it's yours. You can see why the first people who heard this message said, well, that's good news. For, but for many of us, you're immediately like, wait, 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 no, 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 no. No, God blesses the hardworking. God blesses the morally upright. God blesses all the people who make the right decisions. God blesses the people who do, say the right things at the right time. God blesses the people that make the right confession of faith. God blesses the people who go to the right schools, right, students? God blesses the people who work hard and keep their nose clean. That's who the God of favor, uh, that's who the favor of God is for. Which then says God's love is for the people that can earn it. So if at the moment we look down upon someone because they aren't as disciplined or hardworking, upright, smart, responsible, moral, God-fearing, Bible-believing, or Jesus-trusting as we are, because they've made some idiotic, stupid, immoral choices again and again, at that moment, we are in fact rich in spirit. And Jesus isn't announcing anything to us here. 
The gospel is the announcement that in your pathetic, bedraggled, confused, morally ambiguous state in which there's nothing good inside of you, God announces, I'm on your side. Perhaps we could say it this way. If you are a church and you're a gathering of people who take seriously the gospel pronouncement of Jesus, then you have to embrace the simple truth that before it's a theology or a system or a doctrine or a church, it's first an announcement. God has sent his son into the world, his one and only son, because God so loved the world. And this son did not come to judge or condemn, but to save. And he begins this epic Sermon on the Mount by starting with an announcement. A shocking, jarring, strangely counterintuitive, exuberant, healing, comforting sort of message. All the people who think, I'm out, God's blessing is now pouring out on you. The creator of the universe who you've been convinced is for all the people who do it right. Well, now it doesn't work that way. You don't earn it. You simply stand in awe of it because it's an announcement. It's not a teaching. It's not advice. It's not blame. It's not the way in which the world works. It's an announcement that God's love, the kingdom of heaven, has now become available in a fresh new way. For all the people who have absolutely no claim to it and they don't deserve it. Blessed are those who there's no reason in the world why they should be blessed. If at any moment something within you says, no, 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 it can't be. That's not right. Then in fact, you're rich in spirit and the announcement isn't for you. If you think, no, no, it can't be. It's for the good people who have kept their nose clean that's who it's for, then you're rich in spirit. And Jesus' announcement just doesn't make sense. It can't make sense. If you're like, no, no, it's blessed is for all the people who know how much they need God. Well, that's partially true. But if knowing how much I need God, then that it becomes a condition that we work for. Then we have, in fact, missed Jesus in his own teaching. So you can take the Jesus part right out of his teaching and say, well, this is how to live. And yet you miss Jesus in his own teaching. To keep Jesus in the center of his teaching is to sit in the counterintuitive, shocking, confrontive, and yet strangely consoling vision of a pronouncement that says all of the zeros, the morally bankrupt, the epically confused and ambiguous, the deficient, the depraved, those who have really, really, really messed it up. God is on your side. And that is the gospel. So our West Side community has the tagline of or statement of faith. Belong, believe, and become. And I believe that this statement summarizes the Sermon on the Mount. Because the order of these words is flipped from what you would experience in many religions and also many churches. Because most say you need to first believe something, believe what we believe, and then you can belong. Still others take it a step further. And they say, no, no, no. you got to believe 
and become, and then we'll let you belong. So those communities might have a standard to be more committed, more moral, more devoted. But as Jesus' announcement is upside down, so too is the order of our statement here. We first say, no, 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 you belong. And then that can generate a whole new world of belief in a loving God, which then transforms you to become what he already sees you as and what he created you to be. If Jesus were here right now, standing in the flesh, I believe the words he would speak, the primary message he would want us to have is that God is on your side. And each one of you, you belong. You belong. You belong. That's the gospel. It's the good news that we need, that people need, the world needs desperately. And we have this gift to just receive it and then join with Jesus in announcing it. You belong. God is on your side. So often in our Sunday services, we have a time before we take the communion together where we connect with each other and discuss from our heart for about five minutes or so. So we're going to have a time right now. I've got a couple of discussion questions, hopefully up on the screen. So uh, please find two or three other people that you can kind of circle around and and, uh, discuss the following questions. So first, do you find yourself more often feeling like you belong or feeling like you don't belong? What makes you feel that way? And the second question, how does Jesus' announcement strike you that God is on your side? So let's go ahead and uh, circle up. Let's take five minutes right now and discuss. All right, so thank you for discussing and engaging with our family. If you're new here, this is what we like to do. We like to do more than just listen from the person up here. We like to listen to each other. And then listen to you. So I'm going to say a prayer now, and then we're going to uh, have a time to uh, take our communion and reflect on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to speak to those of us who are firmly convinced right now that your blessing is for someone else. We ask to be comforted, healed with the gospel announcement that you are on our side. Father, for those of us who are deeply convinced that because of what we've done or who we are, and that's why your blessing is for us, please just shake our religion and crush it and demolish it and rescue us from our religion so that we can instead have gospel. Please rescue us from all the ways in which we measure ourselves against others and where we find our own self-righteousness from the failures and stumbling of other people. 
Please rescue us from that religion into a blessing and a favor that has no reason, doesn't come from something good in us, but comes from who you are. And we take all the stories of Jesus where someone throws a banquet or he heals someone or he wants to have dinner with somebody who no one wants to have dinner with. Please rescue us from endlessly asking why when the only why is because you, you are love. We ask for this gospel to permeate our families, our businesses, our marriages, our friendships. Announcements of your love, your favor, your blessing. Please shake us, confront us, heal us with your gospel. We thank you for this Jesus who teaches us and heals us, dies for us, he dies for this gospel. And in his resurrection, he inaugurates a whole new world. Father, we love you and we pray this all now. In the name of Jesus, amen. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.